This is my conversation with David Perot. David is a writer, podcaster, and founder of the course, Rite of Passage. In our conversation, we delve into why David thinks the internet is the best thing that ever happened to education, writing online, and effective ways to do so, long-term goals, chat GPT, and much more. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. So I figured we could go in like a ton of different places with this conversation, but I want to start at Rite of Passage Liftoff since it bridges a lot of these ideas I want to talk to you about. So you already have a very successful writing course called Rite of Passage that is mostly aimed at adults. And now you recently launched the beta cohort of Rite of Passage Liftoff, which is a course specifically for high schoolers. And I have the pleasure to be a part of the beta group. And let me tell you, it is incredibly fun to attend those live sessions and meet other ambitious people. So if you could just describe Liftoff and your reasoning behind launching a writing course for teenagers, that'd be an awesome place to begin. How about you describe Liftoff? I want to hear it from you and then I'll build off of that. But you're a student. It, like, I feel like you, you're going to have such a better answer to this. Yeah, so it's amazing. It's really cool that I got to actually be uh, involved at the very beginning. So just when you were even asking for feedback directly from high schoolers and teenagers about your product. So I actually got in on those as well. And so really have gone through the content quite a lot of times. And the lead instructor, JP, I think he's just amazing. His storytelling, just the way he speaks and keeps us captivated the entire session, even though I'm like repeating those sessions so many times with uh, all the while that have done liftoff. And uh, yeah, I, I just love meeting the new people, the breakout rooms, right? Zoom and all the content. I think it's just amazing. My answer's all over the place because, you know, so excited about it. But I think Liftoff is just an amazing place where people who want to get published, specifically high schoolers right now, they can get published by writing online. And you've talked in so many places why writing online is so cool and you can just do so many things with it. And I think aiming it at high schoolers is an amazing thing. So just curious yeah. why you thought about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're you're sort of our ideal student, actually. And that's why I really wanted to do this interview with you. I think that when I look at somebody like you, and we can talk about all these things today, I see somebody who's insanely curious. Um, I get the sense that you might be limited by where you live in certain ways. And actually, you know what? Everybody's limited by where they live, right? So you're limited. I was limited in, a little bit in San Francisco, definitely limited in North Carolina when I was going to school. And I didn't feel like I had people around me who were intellectually curious and who were helping me advance that. And I think that Arjun, I think that you're like exactly the kind of person that I really want to be helping. And I think that there's, that shows up in a lot of ways. It shows up in your willingness to sort of put ideas out into the world and clearly a burning curiosity and a struggle with the school system where this shows up all the time. I think that a lot of school is geared around tests. It's geared around rote memorization in the wrong ways. And I think that for people like you who are self-driven, who are insanely curious, you actually end up limited by the school system. I had a project uh, and this w was sort of the exception that proves the rule. The fact that I say that I had this project and it was such a big deal, I think shows how little school allows you to pursue the things that you're actually interested in. So sixth grade at a project called the iSearch. And uh, my teacher, Miss Peterson, she said, hey, for the next six weeks, you can learn about whatever you want. 
And so I took a step back. I said, what am I passionate about? What am I interested in? And at the time, it was the Boeing 787 airplane. I was really interested in aviation, especially commercial jets. And the 787 was going to come out in a couple of years. And so I just got obsessed with this plane. How is it being built? Okay, we there's composite fibers instead of normal fuselages. How is Boeing thinking about the construction? Oh my goodness, they are building this airplane all over the world. And then they're going to bring it together rather than building it in one central location like previous Boeing airplanes. And I ended up getting better than a perfect score on this paper. And what that taught me was, at the time, I wasn't a very good writer. And what that taught me was, if I could go all in, and I could choose what I was going to write about, and actually just follow my innate curiosity, I could do so much better. And liftoff is like the eye search for every high school student. There are so many high school students that are curious about things, but they don't tell other people that they're curious about things. And their parents are like, you're using the internet? Like, why are you using the internet? That's for weirdos. And their teachers are like, I don't really know what to do with you. And then their friends are like, why are you interested in that? Just go focus on this other nonsense. And liftoff exists to basically change the paradigm for these kids, to basically flip the arrow, where right now the arrow is pointing towards less curiosity and less passion and less individuality. And liftoff is about more curiosity and more passion and more individuality. Because when I look at all you liftoff kids, I see people who are different and distinct in some way, but who have to repress that. And liftoff is about expanding those things because that is what makes us great. And that's what allows us to not only achieve things in the world, but enjoy our work as well. I love that. So that story of the high school experience was also pretty cool. And from what I've heard, you've had an interesting high school experience, even after that, you know, the little story. And more specifically, like in your college writing class, you got a C minus, which is yeah. heavily ironic, or maybe it's not so ironic if it's obvious to you how school stuff works. <laughs> and so, you know, you crafted your own pathless path and essentially wrote yourself out. Um, let's say you were a 15 year old in high school and you have the knowledge you currently possess, but not the resources. Maybe your parents are a bit orthodox. And so presumably there's someone you'd have to win an argument against as well. What would you do? Describe the path you'll take. Yeah. So let's do the advice and then let's do winning an argument with your parents. Cause that actually sounds like a really fun rabbit hole to go down. <laughs> So what I would do is I'd write on the internet. Now, some 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, they don't want to be writing under their real name, and that's totally fine. If you do a pseudonym, you can crush it. We actually have somebody who works for Rite of Passage full-time. He's our entrepreneur in residence. His name is The Cultural Tutor. And I found him early this year. He started the year. He was basically working at McDonald's, and he wasn't even high up enough to be flipping the burgers. He was sweeping the floors. He was the lowest rung on the ladder at McDonald's. And before that, he was like the overnight guard at his university, 25 years old, living with his parents. And he would basically do the overnight shift and he would just read and he would write, read and he would write. And he wrote these books and never really published them, never really got his ideas out. And so what happened was a mutual friend said, hey, you got to start writing online. We're going to meet and you're going to write a thread every single day, every single day. And he's going to hit a million followers in less than a year with incredible stuff. 
and he's writing under a pseudonym. And so you can do the same thing. We have a student in Rite of Passage Liftoff. Her name is Esther, and she writes under a pseudonym called Enlightened Cloud, and she's brilliant too. Or you can write under your real name. But what you want to be doing is you just want to be writing consistently. Now, there's a few ways that you can think about writing. I think it's easy to say, hey, I'm just going to try to find original ideas and stuff like that. But you don't need to start there. You can actually build an audience and really start learning just by summarizing the ideas of other people. So many scholars, if you look at great philosophers like Charles Taylor, he writes a he wrote a book called The Secular Age, which is sort of the defining book on how the society without religion is going to function. And before he wrote that, he was a Hegel scholar. He wrote a whole book about Hegel's ideas and bringing them into a book to make them accessible. And this shows up all the time. You can summarize other people's work. And as you do that, as you write, you begin to understand what's going on. It's sort of like when kids take apart computers in order to learn about them. Growing up, there was a kid in my middle school. His name was Jeremy. And Jeremy ended up getting kicked out of high school because he hacked into the school IT department and basically changed all of his grades and all of his friends' grades to make them better. I think it's pretty awesome. And so what he would do is he would deconstruct computers on the weekend. So he would, his dad was a software engineer and he would take the computers and he would totally take them apart. He would rebuild the computers. He'd try to do cool things with them. And what he said is that by rebuilding the computers, by taking them apart, deconstructing and reconstructing, that then is how you could understand computers. And you can do the same thing with ideas. What you're doing when you're writing is you're taking the individual ideas, you're putting them into building blocks, you're fragmenting the ideas, and you're beginning to rearrange them. You're beginning to add stories. You're beginning to say, you know what? This part of the idea is less important. This part of the idea is more important. And so then by weighting different parts of the idea, now that idea is moving through you. And now you're retelling the idea through your own lens, and you're adding a new spin, a new interpretation. And that is one of the best ways to learn. So if I'm 15, 16 years old, I'm starting a blog, and I'm taking ideas that I think are interested, I'm reconstructing them, and then maybe adding my own twist here or there. And over time, you end up developing your own original ideas. So just like, just a question there. Would you recommend people start a blog or actually write where people tend to read more? How's someone going to find my blog? If you know, nobody knows that it exists? It's just something on the web. But that's a great question. So Here's what I would do. I do two things. So you could also start a Twitter account. Twitter is really helpful. It's sort of the social media platform for people who are interested in ideas. Or you can take your ideas and write for like a link aggregator. And that could be something like Hacker News. So you're thinking, okay, what pops on Hacker News? And how do I deconstruct what works there and then write something that's going to go viral on Hacker News? And The essence of what you're trying to do is you're trying to tap into these public platforms, these places where a lot of people hang out, where it's free to read, free to write, and then these platforms have these algorithms either through upvoting like Hacker News or Reddit or likes and comments and the self-perpetuating feedback loops like you find on Twitter. And then that allows people to be introduced to your stuff. And then once they find it, then they go on your website. But I do recommend having a website because a website allows you to have an email list. And once you have an email list, 
then you can really build relationships with your readers. If you talk to people who've been working in online business for a long time or writing on the internet for a long time, time and again, one thing you hear is my biggest regret was not starting an email list sooner. And don't do that. Start your email list. Get that going. You don't need to email them every week. You maybe email them once a month or once a quarter. Like you can you can start slow, but start building up that email list because once you have those people, that's when you're really building relationships. And then you can reach those people whenever you want without being mediated by an algorithm. Right. So now you're building the relationships. Perhaps let's say you're exposing yourself to slightly more counterculture ideas. Okay. Yeah. There's different kinds of stuff and you're starting to question things. You're getting more clearer in your thinking when you're writing stuff down. And now you're starting having, uh, starting to have a little bit of friction between your parents, school, teachers, and, you know, you sort of don't want to do it. And you think, okay, this writing thing is going well, but how do I convince my parents that, you know, I can continue with this and I don't have to go to school. School is not adding value to me. What if I can do homeschooling? What if I can, you know, just de-school myself? How do you go about convincing them if you're 15 again? So I'm not sure that you necessarily want to jump to homeschooling. I think that that depends on your situation. So I think that there's a few things here. The first is, do you, like a lot of people just don't have the money to do homeschooling, to do a private school or something like that. And so they might have to be stuck in public school. And that sucks. That's hard. But you know what? I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, go convince your parents to get you out of school. What I will say is when you're not in school, when you do have time, spend your nights, your Saturdays and your Sundays, really focusing on writing and learning, writing and learning. Do not let yourself be somebody who just consumes and consumes and consumes and says, oh, I'm learning. Actually produce things, actually make things. That's then when you're going to make opportunities for yourself, okay? Now, if you're in a school that you don't like, see if there's another school that you can find. But by and large, I don't think that most people who are going to be thinking like this are going to be happy in a school environment. The question, I think, is what happens once you get to college age? And what I would just say is it is very hard to prescribe a path for people who leave the path of traditional education, which is actually part of the problem. We don't have very good safety nets for people who are struggling where they can go on that safety net and they can land there away from the traditional school system. And that's one of the things that I would love to build over the next couple decades with Rite of Passage is if you are on the traditional track and this track isn't working for you because you're more curious, you're smarter, you feel like education is dumbing down ideas and you're frustrated about that, I want Rite of Passage to be a place where people can go. With that said, that's not built yet. So keep writing, keep publishing. And what happens is as you share ideas, each one is what I call a serendipity vehicle. So what happens is there's frequencies that exist in the world. And this is going to sound really, ooh, like woo-woo and energy, but it's just true. So what happens is you put ideas out into the world and you have your Arjun frequency, okay? And like when you share taking children seriously and some of the works behind that, what happens is a bunch of other people who are saying, oh, this is really interesting that people who are throwing fits, that's actually just to respond to coercion and being coerced. Oh, that's interesting. So now you share that idea. You're recommending that idea. 
I am saying, oh, that's really interesting. And now we get on the same wavelength and people reach out to you. I can't tell you who's going to reach out to you. I can't tell you what they're going to reach out to you about. I can't tell you what opportunities will come from this. But I can tell you that people are going to reach out to you. If you have good ideas, they'll be interesting people. And that interesting ideas that you would have never expected will come to you. And you just have to have faith that that's going to happen if you write well and you write consistently and you publish your ideas. I love that. So you recently wrote a Twitter thread on the questions we need to answer to improve education. And in the very first tweet, you mentioned the internet as being the best thing that ever happened to education. Uh, So I agree to an extent, right? Firstly, we both know when you say education there, you mean like real education, not conventional education, because conventional education is still quite backward and doesn't implement new technologies. Rather, it would actually aim to inhibit quote-unquote cheating, ChatGPT, for instance. But, you know, when you think about it, the internet just added a lot of potential for advancing education. It never really did revolutionize the field. A few of us recognized the power of it and so used it to a benefit. But most people primarily think school is the place where learning happens. Totally. Okay, so we have a lot of things here. We need to deconstruct it. So the first thing you said is that the internet hasn't revolutionized the field. And we need to split learning from education and what will happen in education from what has happened in education, okay? So learning, we need to really value. Education, which is formal, top-down, let me tell you what I know, and like a monk or uh, let me just bestow this wisdom upon you. That we don't need to value super highly. What we need to value highly is learning, okay? Now, at the same time, there are reasons why we do education. It used to be a lot of education was one-on-one tutoring, and these were the children of aristocrats. And what they would do is they would get tutors for their kids. So you have John Stuart Mill, you had Richard Feynman. So many people were tutored and trained on an individual basis, Descartes. And they learned in a way that was education, but it wasn't mass compulsory education like what we have right now, okay? The other thing is that the internet itself increases variance all the time. So this is what I call the paradox of abundance. The the quality of the best information, the quality and the quantity is going up. There is so much good stuff out there, okay? If you are serious about learning, you can find information for free that is superb. The problem is that we basically have the smartest people in the world who are creating these social media platforms that are designed to be addicting and to take over our brains so that we literally use lose agency over what we're doing. And like Pavlov's dogs, we're responding to these notifications and just basically succumbing to addiction, information addiction, that is taking us to information that is nonsense and hollow and actually bad for our minds a lot of the time, right? Look at how society is functioning right now. We are so indexed towards the news, but the news isn't how you become an informed citizen. The news, the premise of the news is that what happened yesterday and what happened the day before, what's happened recently, if you are an expert on that, then you will be an informed citizen. What nonsense, what bogus, that's not true at all. To become an informed citizen, you want to understand these deep underlying currents that are happening in society. So rather than looking at 
who was killed yesterday, look at demographics rather than looking at some think piece on what's happening in politics right now, actually study, if you're an American, the Federalist Papers, the actual founding of America. Go back and read Platonic political theory and how did Greek political thought influence how we think about things now? What are the benefits of monarchies versus democracies versus different kinds of ways of thinking about politics? That is what it means to be an educated citizen. And so with the internet, in order to learn, in order to have it work for you, you need a tremendous amount of self-control because you have such brilliant people who are gaming the internet in order to take over your mind and you can't let that happen to you. Now, what the internet can do is it can unlock opportunities for education. Why? Because most people are stuck going to a school and the school that they have to go to depends on where they happen to be born in the world. So if you grow up in a poor neighborhood, you often end up in a really bad school with kids who are troublesome, not always of the fault of their own. They're in tough families. They live in tough communities. And you have teachers who really struggle <clears throat> to deal with those kids. And then other people who live in wealthier neighborhoods, they get to go to better schools. And this isn't just neighborhoods. This is by, by neighborhood, by city, by state, by country, by hemisphere. And what the internet's going to allow you to do is if you're a really smart person, you can go say that you really want to learn how to write and say that Liftoff is the best writing program in the world, no matter where you live, whether you live in Mumbai, Sydney, Cape Town, London, or Austin, Texas, you can go to write a passage Liftoff and you can go receive the best writing education no matter where you live. And that is only possible because of the internet. And so it's really easy to look at the first 20 years of the internet and say, oh, you know, we haven't discovered how education will really be changed by this thing. But the internet is going to change education. But there are landmines to look out for, like some of the social media platforms, which, which I just spoke about. Yeah, so I agree, definitely, like right now as well, we do have that potential, right, for this to happen. And you sort yeah. of hinted at uh, Warren Buffett's idea of the ovarian lot lottery there, that, you yeah. know, getting born in a rich neighborhood or neighborhood but with the internet that's all disappearing right and if you can get access to it like obviously we have access to it but then understand that you have access to it and really go and get it instead of being sucked up into you know scrolling and just consuming and i think it's yeah. Uh, yeah really cool and like even broader right i think I know that you've read Iwan Illich and you might yeah. be familiar with the idea of learning webs and learning networks. So we're, you know, with the internet, we can transform the assembly line kind of system into a more of a network kind of yeah. system. So everything is being networked. People who need, people who want to learn stuff, they are given the resources, given the people who are knowledgeable in the field and they're given access to them. And then, you know, those the dots connect and the network builds and they learn through that. And, you know, removing the whole credentialing system and doing all that, that will obviously take some time if we uh, add efforts in the right direction. But it's just curious that we might be going towards this network-oriented uh, kind of system where, you know, just the internet might be able to help for that. But right until now, it hasn't, even though Elisha's ideas are like so old. Like 
I don't know, 50 years old now or 40? Yeah, 70s. So, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's just curious that he wrote that like so many years ago, but we still haven't done that. We are seeing change slowly. And, you know, this entire Twitter space of alternative education is awesome, but we do want to make it broader and how many, speaking of learning networks, how many friends do you have? People who you know in person, your age, who you can have a conversation with, like the one that you're having right now? In person? In person. That's going to be hard. Um, less than five, less than seven. That's pretty good, actually. So are they people from school? Yeah, people from school and yeah, uh, my building kind of thing. And when you talk to them, do you feel like you're dumbing things down or do you feel like they can keep up with you? Well, these kinds of people, uh, no, they can't sometimes keep up with me. They can keep up with me. But like, you know, broader kind of a thing, almost nobody can. <laughs> but I have to dumb down. And I tend to just express my views. They don't catch up. But then, yeah, I just talk my mind sometimes. And how does that make you feel? Not having like, these people. Sometimes I feel pride in my unconventionality for some reason. Yeah. But yeah. otherwise, yeah, it, it's okay for me actually being the different one. Even in school right now, my I'm at a stage where the teachers have just given up, right? They they really <laughs> can't they really can't keep telling me stuff because they tell me stuff and I, then I won't do it. And you know they tell me more stuff then I won't do it. They're like call your parents. I'm like okay you can do that <laughs> but it's not gonna help me like change because you know it's like you automatically get this freedom once you have sort of a contrarian perspective to education right right they they can force it upon you but when you think differently you just uh sort of create that freedom just then by thinking differently even though you're constrained in like so many different ways but you just try and create that freedom. So I'm just trying and creating more freedom, more space right now, even though they're putting stuff on me. School is very uncertain right now. I don't know what position I'm in. Don't want to complete it, but yeah, it's definitely not adding value to it. So just thinking about- What's the worst thing about school? Being, you know, I think the worst thing is the entire authoritarian manner in which the teacher speaks to the child. I've, so- these are friends that, you know, I don't even like have to, so I do have to dumb down upon. And they think that, you know, teachers are treating us like dogs, actually. And uh, I've heard that explicitly by one of my friends. And, you know, it's, it's really not cool when they're talking to you, when they're talking at you instead of talking to you. And yeah, just coercing your, coercing children into doing so many things. I think that's like, Obviously, it's broad, but that's like probably the worst one. And does testing and well, what's the worst part about writing education? Again, forcing topics that probably children don't want to write about. You know, Noel has this very awesome quote: "Read, uh, read what you love until you love to read." But I think that also explains why most kids in high school they don't like to read and they don't read because, like, you're actually forced all these things to read like all these big textbooks and stuff you actually don't want to read so when you're forced all that it's like you know reading is always kind of this thing that's looked down upon it's like a burden a task 
and everything in school is just like a burden task and you, you don't just want you're just getting by it because you want to go to a good college and you know get a job and stuff for me that's that's not something i want to do and that's why again i can find my space in the system not really find it but just trying to make the best again as you said before like you know work on the weekends work after school before school sometimes during school yeah it's funny right like i think that there's two things here the first is how school kills curiosity, which is insane, right? So you basically, this becomes more and more of a problem as you can learn more and more on your own. So it used to be that in order to learn on your own, you'd have to go to library or have a library card and you'd have to acquire information some way, right? Because information was physical. And so unless you had a, a house full of books, what you'd have to do is you actually have to go somewhere and then bring that stuff back. Okay, now... You can just go on your phone or go on your computer. You read whatever the hell you want. You can go Wikipedia, go read free eBooks, whatever you want. Listen to podcasts like this. So basically the returns to being super curious go up. And if you talk to people, I once had a conversation with a very successful angel investor who used to be on the, he worked very closely with Mike, with Bill Gates at Microsoft and He's now invested in something like three, 400 startups. And I said, hey, what is the big difference now versus when you started your career? And he said, when I started my career, where you were born was more important than how smart and curious you are. Now, how smart and curious you are is more important than where you're born. And he was astounded at how knowledgeable young founders are today. They're really exceptional people. It's like, they are so much smarter than we were when I was that age, because this is the access to the internet. And so basically, school more and more needs to instill curiosity in people, because once you have curiosity, once you love to learn, you hit the singular, you hit the singularity, you have it made, whatever it is that you're interested in, You can just go follow that. And so the fact that schools are taking people's curiosity away instead of adding to people's curiosity is a tragedy. And the problem is we focus so much on making sure that you're learning more this semester, you're making sure you learn this year, making sure you get into a good college, that we forget that school is about building a successful life. And if you can have people who graduate as being really curious, the chances of having that happen increase. And so if I was running schools, I mean, I am running schools, I want to make sure that people are learning to be curious and we're actually increasing their curiosity instead of decreasing it, showing them that you can access all this information. The world is so cool. Go out, go explore that. Here are the benefits of doing it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, agree. Like curiosity is again just being inhibited in so many other people, and yeah, I just hate school for that. But so let's turn to writing. You're obviously famous for writing a lot about writing, but you also write about important ideas like religion, advancing education, and business. So generally, there's many important ideas, but they are well covered by other thinkers, and so not quite interesting to write about. But what's a novel and important idea? you haven't written about?
let me answer that a little differently. There's a lot of novel and important ideas that I want to write more about. And one of the things that I've really been interested in pursuing is this lineage between three different entrepreneurs. Edwin Land, who founded Polaroid, Walt Disney, who founded Disney and created Disneyland, and Steve Jobs. And I think, and then you could even add Pixar into this mix. I think that these are four very distinct companies that operate in very similar ways. And the big thing is how much they value the intuition of their founders and intuition in the creative process and not being purely driven by data and reason. Now, they will come up with ideas and then they will improve them with data, but their foundational ideas were driven by something transcendent. And if you look at Steve Jobs early on, he had this very intuitive sense of what computers needed to be. And early on, he goes to places like the Homebrew Computing Club, where people would build their own computers. And this was the big thing at the time. We're going to build our own computers. And Steve Jobs was like, no, we're going to sell computers to people. And people and, and, and these computer nerds were like, why would people ever want to do that? Like, isn't the whole fun of having computers, the fact that you get to build your own computer, you get to tinker with it. It was like, no, no, no. Most people just don't care about that. They just want a computer that comes right out of the box that is slick and beautiful and elegant. And very early on, he was focused on that mission. Walt Disney was the same way. When Walt Disney was building Disneyland, people thought that he was making a giant mistake in his career. They were like, this is going to th- be the thing that ruins you. He basically comes out of World War II and he gets obsessed with miniatures, these little models and stuff, and then these sort of toy trains. He sells his old house. He buys a new one in Bel Air in, in Los Angeles just so that he can have a one-eighth scale model train of his favorite train from the late 19th century that he then builds that goes, woo, burr, 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 that all around his house. And then eventually it crashes and the whole experiment's over. And at the, And when he was early on being a dad, he would go to this place called Griffith Park in New York. And he was like, why is it that they make parks that only kids like, but not adults? And at the time, having parks for adults wasn't a big thing. And then what parks there were, what amusement parks there were, they didn't treat their visitors with care. So the word for visitors was marks. It was like mark one, mark two, mark three, mark four, sort of very militaristic, treating every single person without a personality. And each one is the same as the others. And Disney said, no, 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 no. We're going to call them guests. We're going to build a park that is rooted in imagination that is going to be as enjoyable for adults as kids. And he basically put out the $17.5 million bet, created Disneyland, And it became super popular. And what I find to be so interesting about this thread of entrepreneurs is what intuition can do for innovation. And I think that we've become so data-driven as a society that we've lost some of these grand projects that can be really ambitious, that can be really bold, and where somebody can basically plant a flag and say, we're going to do this and actually make it happen. And you see that with Disney. You see that with Apple. You see that with John F. Kennedy. I think it's 1961. He delivers a speech at Rice University and he basically says, 
we're going to go to the moon by the end of this decade. We choose to go to the moon, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And that is just a crazy, bold, ambitious, concrete vision. And now we're much more into things like the lean startup, which tend to be a little bit more data-driven, do some tests, boom, boom, boom. And that's all fine and well, but I think that we've lost a lot of what's in that intuitive ethos. Mm. Well, haven't you written a book yet? And are you planning to write one ever? I'll write one at some point. I think that writing a book has to come out of you and you need to feel a real magnetic pull towards it. And I think that I can write a book whenever, but right now is the time to build Write a Passage and that's my focus. I just want to even write a book. I mean, yeah, like you obviously need to be driven, but there's always highs and lows while writing, right? Uh, I'm in the midst of writing one. I actually like went on like another book. So before I was like, you know, starting my own book and very excited about it. Took a while, like, you know, one year just went by, had words down on paper, um, on docs and yeah, it, it just flew by. I had all these arbitrary goals that I had to uh meet, didn't meet them. But now I've like taken another project and this time I'm co authoring a book, so I have more accountability. And, you know, I keep specific deadlines and I tell my co author that and it's just easier that way when you know, you have more accountability than otherwise, like before I, I literally hadn't tell, told anyone about that book, but when you're planning to do long-term projects, what do you, yeah, what do you want to do when you kind of have these long-term projects in mind? Yeah, I think that the best thing to do with any long-term project is to break it down into short-term projects and to break it down into daily projects. So say that your project is, I want to get ripped. I want to be super strong and look super good. Well. What do you need to do? You need to go to the gym 250 times a year. Okay, so that means that you need to work out your arms 80 times. It needs to, means you need to do a back day 80 times. You need to do a leg day 80 times. Eight, 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 that's 240. And then 10 other days here and there, right? Then what you're going to do is you're going to do 100 runs per year. And that year, you're going to do 500 miles, okay? So now your average run is five miles. You do 100 runs per year. Okay, so then you have that. That's my year. Then you break that into a month. Then you break that into a week. Then you break that week into a day. And then you have a calendar where you're just checking things off. And if you can take big projects and make them small and create a psychological feeling of progress and advancement, those big projects get so much easier. Yeah. I love how you deconstructed just that entire goal into at least small pieces. That's cool. Is, is ChatGPT a part of your writing routine? What are your thoughts on ChatGPT? It's not a part of my writing routine. And I think it's great because it's going to folk, it's going to force schools to move away from these very formulaic essays that so many students BS and into something that ChatGPT3 can't do. And you're going to have to learn to write in a way where the structure is going to be different every time. You're going to have to learn to really express yourself. You're going to have to learn how to write with personality and write with pizzazz. And you're going to have to learn to be a differentiated writer. And you're going to be able to take any writing assignment and put it up against chat GPT-3. And that will then be the comparison. And I think that that's just going to be one of the best things that's going to happen to writing education. Now, what is also going to happen 
is, and you see this in chess, right? Like for so long, and actually it's a little bit less like this now, but for so long, the best chess players, the best chess outcomes came from a computer working with a human. So a computer on their own actually wasn't as good as a computer with a human and they would work together. And I think that a lot of creativity is going to look like that where say that you have a sentence. So you could have, I want to go get some bagels at my favorite bagel shop. You can take that sentence and you can basically say, okay, now rewrite this like David Foster Wallace. Now rewrite this like David Deutsch. Now rewrite this like Joan Didion. Now rewrite this like Robert Caro. And then you'll basically get all these different versions. You can just instantly get these versions. And then the art of being a writer moves from the act of creation to the act of curation. It moves from it moves into taste where you're seeing all of these different options and then you're basically mishmashing different things that a computer has generated for you into something of quality and something of substance. And then a lot of your ability to get good stuff is going to be downstream of your ability to prompt something interesting and generative into chat GPT. And that's going to become a skill on its own. And so it'll be humans and computers working together. And we should embrace that instead of running away from it. I love that. So David, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time here. If you'd like to support this podcast, there is a link in the description for you to do just that. Please know that any support is deeply appreciated and will improve what I create here and elsewhere. Thanks for listening.